as part of our Lenten journey, we are exploring what it means to be followers or what it means to be disciples of Jesus, what it means to allow our lives and be to, our, our lives to be shaped and formed into the very image of Christ Jesus. And so we've organized this series around three points. Um, what does it mean to be um, what does it mean to be with Jesus? What does it mean to be like Jesus? And today we're going to talk about, I think, the most difficult topic, at least for me, how we do what Jesus did. Because the promise in Scripture is that we who are followers of Jesus can do everything, everything that Jesus did, that the same power that was within Jesus, that empowered Jesus to do the things that he did, is the same power that resides within us. But sometimes that is something we proclaim but we don't necessarily believe. How about I not say we? How about I say I? It's something that I sometimes proclaim but struggle to believe. Matthew 4, beginning with verse 18, if you have your Bibles. As Jesus was walking beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon and Peter. Simon called Peter and his brother Andrew. They were casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. Over and over, if you go back and read through the Gospels, the, the call continually is, come and follow me. That is the altar call that Jesus gives. It is not the Roman road or the one, two, threes or the ABCs of the Gospel. It is simply to come and to follow. And then Jesus says something that has become a cliche in some church circles. He says, I will make you fishers of men. This was a phrase, actually, that ancient rabbis used. And uh, to be a fisher of men was essentially you would collect disciples. You would collect followers. I tried to think of it in modern-day um, modern parlance. Um, you know, basically, you'll be a great teacher, and that teacher will collect following. Essentially, I will make you B'nai Brown. Um, at once, they left their nets and followed him. Going on from there, he saw two brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and his brother John. They were called the sons of thunder. I guess that they got in trouble a lot. They were in a boat with their father Zebedee preparing their nets. Jesus called them and immediately they left the boat and their father and they followed him. Like they didn't even stop to think about it. Like their father goes home and tells the mother, um, our sons got called by a rabbi and they have left. They are on a new journey. And Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in the, their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness among the people. News about him spread all over Syria, and people brought to him all who were ill with various diseases, those suffering severe pain, the demon-possessed, those having seizures, and the paralyzed, and he healed them. Large crowds from Galilee, the Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and the regions across the Jordan followed him. Then in uh, chapters 5, 6, and 7 in Matthew's gospel, we get a G the Jesus manifesto on what it means to live as followers of Jesus, what it means to live into this new kingdom, this new reality, which is entered into the present. It's called the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus is beginning to paint a picture. He is telling a better story, a different story of what it means to live the good life. Skip to chapter 9. 
As Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. Tax collectors were the most hated, reviled members of society. He saw him sitting at the tax collector booth, and he said, follow me. And he told Matthew, follow me, he told Matthew, and Matthew got up and followed him. Then verse 10, while Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners, many people who were reviled, many people who were seen as being outside the bounds of God's family, many people who religious people wanted nothing to do with, came and they ate with him. They ate with Jesus and his disciples. Jesus was sharing table fellowship with people that no one, none of the good people wanted to hang out. And when the Pharisees saw this, they asked the disciples, and I honestly think they're not being snarky at this moment. They are truly perplexed. They said, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I, have come not, for I have come not to call the righteous, but the sinners. Which is why when we invite you to come and partake of communion at the end of service, we always say this. This table is open to everyone who sees themselves in need of God's grace. And the reason for that is because if you don't see yourself in need of, as in need of grace, if you don't see yourself as someone broken, the gospel is meaningless to you. For I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. The people who follow Jesus don't have it all together, but Jesus invites us to follow anyway. Jesus goes around collecting a ragtag group of ordinary people. He collects fishermen who smelled like fish and were not exactly the most desirable group of people. He collects tax collectors. He collects the lost and the least. And then he says, come and be my disciples. Just for reference, rabbis did not call this group of people to come and follow them. Rabbis called the best and the brightest. Rabbis called those who could get into Ivy League schools. Rabbis called those who scored a 180 on their LSAT. Rabbis did not call fishermen. Rabbis did not call tax collectors. The people who followed Jesus did not have it all together. In fact, Jesus seems to focus on those who don't have it all together. Jumping to Matthew chapter 10, beginning with verse 1. And Jesus called his 12 disciples to him, and he gave them authority. He gave them authority to drive out impure spirits and to heal every disease and sickness. Jesus says his followers are able to do the same things that he is able to do. It says that later. And it's a passage that I wrestle with. What does this mean for us? Because we should have the same authority, but often I don't see the things taking place that Jesus was doing. But yet if we take the Bible seriously, this is something we have to wrestle with. As followers of Jesus, we are called to participate in what God is doing in the world. We are called to participate in God's coming kingdom. We are called to heal the broken and free people from things that bind them. And Jesus sent the disciples out and he said, verse 7, As you go, proclaim this message. The kingdom has come near. God's future reality, the thing that you have been waiting for, it has come into the present. Hope 
has arrived. He says this, heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse those who have leprosy, drive out demons, and then you should underline this verse. Freely you have received, freely give. Everything you've received has been gift, therefore you should be people who give freely. You have been invested in. Someone has taken time to invest in you. Now invest in others. Turn with me now to chapter 28 of Matthew's gospel beginning with verse 18. Then Jesus came to them and said, all authority, this is the last, gospel, last chapter in Matthew's gospel. These are some of the last words that Jesus speaks. Then Jesus came to them and said, all authority on heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I will be with you always to the very end of the age. The story, the arc of the story begins this way. Jesus, a teacher, Jesus, a rabbi, begins calling followers. He begins calling apprentices. He begins calling people that he begins to mentor and invest in. Not the best and the brightest, but Jesus calls regular, ordinary people, broken people, people who would have never been chosen to be disciples by any other religious leader. The list of disciples is the list of misfit toys. And, and, and Jesus, Jesus chose these people, and everyone, when they heard, were a bit shocked at who Jesus was choosing to be his disciples. Really? Are you sure? Did we hear you correctly? Did you really call the tax collector? Did you really call Peter that abrasive fisherman who is always getting in fights with other fishermen? Right? Really? Did you call this person? But what happens is these ordinary, everyday people begin to follow the way of Jesus and they begin to participate in the practices of Jesus and then they begin to do the things that Jesus did. They learned how to pray. They began to read the Torah. They practiced Sabbath. They lived in community, and they learned to become generous. And then after walking with Jesus, after hanging out with Jesus, after participating with Jesus, after one, one theologian puts it this way, after practicing at the Jesus dojo, <laughs> I like that, Jesus then calls the disciples to step out. He then calls the disciples to do the very things that he has done and says, I give you all authority. Jesus calls ordinary people to do the extraordinary. It's the arc of scripture. I'm constantly working and tweaking the vision of our church, never quite feeling, feeling as if I've quite gotten it just right how I want to say it. My latest iteration is something like this. We free people to see what God can do through them. We free people to see what God can do through them. I think that some of you, God wants to do such a, not I think, I know that God wants to do extraordinary things through your life, but so many of us are held captive by so many things that keep us from stepping out. We are held captive by doubt. We're held captive by anxiety. We're held captive by insecurity and fear and the stories that we have been told. And what would it mean for us to be people who practice the way of Jesus and then believe that all authority has been given to us and then step out into that authority? Jesus sends them out to make disciples. Jesus trained his disciples. He walked with them. And then they begin to make disciples. They begin to heal the sick. 
The best modern analogy that I might think of what this Jesus dojo looked like is a residency program for medical doctors, an apprenticeship program, right? They come and they hang out with Jesus for four years doing what Jesus did, actually three in his case, but residency is four. And, and, they, and then at the end, Jesus says, I leave you, or Jesus leaves them and then sends them out to continue on what he began. Jesus sends his followers out to do what he did. And for those of us today who are followers of Jesus, if you consider yourself a follower of Jesus, the same calling that is on the life of the disciples, the same vocation that Jesus gave to the disciples is the same calling and the same vocation that is on your life. Sometimes I think we get so caught up in trying to find our purpose that we forget that the purpose for all those who are followers of Jesus is the same. And just a side note on purpose, to have a purpose means that you are means that you are a means to an end, right? We always like, purpose often becomes about us being something special. We wanna do something unique and us matter. But to have a purpose means that you are used for something. You are a means to an end. God uses you to accomplish his will, his will and his, um, his, his movement in the world. God uses you to accomplish his goals in the world. That's what it means to have purpose. We have this unique and common purpose the same as the disciples had. And the end goal for us who are followers of Jesus is to grow and mature into people who carry on the work of Jesus. Where Jesus went, where Jesus went, God's new reality, God's kingdom began to spring forth. Scripture talks about it as a mustard seed. It began, it began so small and then it just begins to grow. In the same way where we go, signs of God's kingdom should begin to spring forth. You can break the works of Jesus' life and ministry down this way. I mean, you can break it down in all sorts of ways, but here's the list I'll give you. You can make your own list and send it to me this week. Number one, preach good news. Jesus went around proclaiming the good news that the kingdom of God, the thing that you have been waiting and longing for, it is here now in your midst newsflash though it doesn't look like what you expected it to look like because the people that you thought would be excluded from God's future kingdom they're actually being invited into the kingdom in fact they're invited in before you which is tosses people off but he preached the good news number two he taught the way particularly Mark's gospel go back and read Mark's gospel from beginning to end and you will find the theme of the way over and over and over again Jesus teaches them a new way of being in the world a new path to follow number three he heals the sick number four he casts out demons he sets people free from the things that have held them captive number five he eats and he drinks with people seen as outsiders tax collectors sinners those others wanted nothing to do with Jesus shares a meal with we see Jesus doing justice. We see Jesus going about peacemaking. We see Jesus praying. We see Jesus giving dignity to those who had no dignity. And number 10, we see Jesus standing up against religious and political corruption. That's what Jesus did. And the belief of Jesus and his early followers that the followers of Jesus could do all of the things that Jesus did. And what frustrates me is that I don't seem to have this all figured out because it, I don't think we're doing all the things that Jesus did. And I sometimes wonder if we are afraid to step out and trust that God really has given us all authority. 
And I know that some of you are feeling the same frustration because you've told me you felt this frustration. In fact, Willow Creek, um, which is one of the largest churches in America, did a study a while ago called Reveal, and they, they did a survey of their congregants, and what they found out is the people who had been walking with Jesus the longest were the most frustrated in their church because at some point after sitting in the pews for a while and following the way of Jesus, there is something inside of you that has to step out, that has to take action, that has to move. Because if we don't move, if there is not growth, things become stale. We have to continue to grow and to move. We have to step out. Now, I don't have all this figured out. In fact, part of me didn't want to preach this sermon because I don't have it all figured out, but I figured we could process it in public. You can figure it out for me. But I want to give us a path forward, not a quick fix, but I want to give us a path forward of how we might be people who can do the things that Jesus did or at least begin the path towards it. Number one, and we're not going to spend too much time because we've already talked about this in depth, but intentional spiritual formation we begin to shape and form ourselves as people who look like Jesus through the work of the Spirit in our lives as we, as we sit under teaching and as we practice the way of Jesus, as we practice peacemaking, as we practice forgiveness, as we practice hospitality, as we sit in community, as we commit ourselves to community. And then the thing that kind of unifies and empowers all that spiritual formation is the Holy Spirit. The Spirit is at the core. Intentional spiritual formation. If we want to do the things that Jesus did, we need to be formed to look like Jesus. We need to be intentional about our spiritual formation. Number two, we need to know the stage of our discipleship and our season in life. One of the things that we're trying to figure out how to do better here at the table is how we help you figure out where you are in your spiritual journey and then take a next step. We are all at different spaces Following Jesus and developing a relationship takes time. You grow over time. You don't microwave Christ-likeness. This is like any relationship. It takes time as you walk as together, as you do life together. And as you hang out with Jesus, the, and through the power of the Spirit, you begin to reflect the lifestyle of Jesus, the spirit of Jesus, the character of Jesus. The longer you follow Jesus, you should begin to reflect Jesus' love and Jesus' peace and Jesus' kindness and Jesus' self-control. This is why we want to keep helping you take this next step. But also, we need to acknowledge that Jesus lived in a, a world that is very different from our own world. You know, some of you um, have WWJD bracelets or you had them in high school. Richard still has one, but a few of you had... <laughs> A few of you used to have those. But sometimes what would Jesus do isn't particularly helpful because we live in a world that is quite different from Jesus' world. Jesus lived in an agrarian culture. Jesus um, walked everywhere, and it's a different space. And so the question I might rephrase for us, but it's really hard to fit on a bracelet, is what would Jesus do if he were me, if he were here today? And one of the things that makes it hard leading a church of diverse people who are in all different stages on their spiritual journey is some of you, I want to come up here on Sundays and give a, a sermon where I look you in the eye and tell you that you were wasting your life sitting at home binging on Netflix and you need to do something. You need to move. 
But the problem is that there are others of you here who you actually need to sit down and just be still for a moment, and you need to be quiet for a moment. And for whatever reason, those of you who are actually the ones who need to move don't ever feel guilt when I put that on you. And for some reason, it is the person who needs to stop and be still who feels guilt, and they're not even sitting around doing nothing. It's what makes it difficult being a pastor. Number three, practice in community. We are better together. We more fully reflect God's kingdom as a whole, as a community. There is something powerful that happens when we practice the way of Jesus in community, not simply as individuals. 1 Peter chapter 2, beginning with verse 11. 1 Peter 2, beginning with verse 11 says this. Dear friends, I urge you as strangers or as foreigners and exiles, I urge you as outsiders, he's saying, Um, I urge you as people who don't quite fit to abstain from sinful desires. Actually, the best translation of that, the NIV translates it sinful, but really the Greek word there means human or material desires, right? Abstain from those desires that drive you, which wage war against your soul. Restrain yourself or abstain from those things who keep you from following the path of Jesus. You were called to something higher, something bigger. Restrain, abstain. And then he says this, live such a good life. Another way to translate good would be beautiful or praiseworthy, but I love beautiful. Live such a beautiful life among the pagans. Again, These words, they have so much meaning that it gets attached. When we think pagan, we think um, something very derogatory. Essentially, pagans were people, uh, some translations say Gentiles, which is, people are like, what? Uh, It's essentially the people he's talking to, people who are not like you, people who are not part of the way, people who aren't followers of Jesus, right? Live such beautiful lives that people who don't follow Jesus, though they accuse you of doing wrong, though they think you are odd and you make what the way you live your life makes absolutely no sense, that they may see your good deeds, they may see your beautiful deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. We are able to do what Jesus did more powerfully as a community and to put Jesus on display as, as a community to such a point that even people who are like, you know what? As people are weird because they get together and they sing songs about Jesus and then they believe that this guy who died was raised again and then they spend like their weeknight going to a community group and they pray for one another and they give their money to help other people they are just weird individuals but yet those same people it's like I don't get them but there's something beautiful about the way they live there's something countercultural about the way they live. But the community not only is a way to put Jesus on display, but the community also begins a training or it becomes a training ground for the way of Jesus. Imagine that if people heard that you were from the table, they said, like I I said, they're a bit odd, but they're more generous than anybody else I know. Imagine if they said, yeah, they're a bit weird, but they have a peace that surpasses all understanding. The peace that they have makes no sense. Yeah, they're weird, but they practice hospitality like nobody else I've ever seen. Yeah, they're weird, but they love everyone. Number four, share a meal. 
one of the central practices of Jesus' life and ministry, one of the things that he does over and over and over again is he shares a meal. Some of you, if you want to do what Jesus did, start small. Maybe you don't start with healing someone. You can try, but maybe you don't start there. Maybe you start with inviting someone to a meal. An outsider, not a friend. We all can invite friends to a meal, but what would happen if you invited someone who makes you just a bit uncomfortable, someone whose life and world is so different from yours that you're like, really, do I want to share a meal with them? Jesus' mission was to seek and to save the lost, and he did it by eating and drinking. When we think about it, really, one of the ways the kingdom of God spreads is through eating and drinking. But of course, it's not just eating and drinking with people who look just like Jesus and believe the exact same things as Jesus did, but it is creating a giant table and then inviting all to that table. For Jesus, it all begins around the table. In Scripture, practicing hospitality is not a suggestion, it is a command. Number five. There's a pastor um, in Portland um, that has really shaped a lot of uh, my thoughts around this. Um, his name's John Mark Comer, and he says that um, Jesus' most amazing miracles were an interruption. And so number five, what does it mean to live in the present? To, to live in such a way that we are willing to adjust our schedule and our life to create space for what God wants to do. Often the miracles that Jesus does don't happen through careful planning, but happen as Jesus is on his way on a journey. He's going somewhere, and then there's an interruption, and someone says, Jesus, I need a touch from God. How do we live in the present? How do we be people who create space in our lives? Because we often become so tunnel-visioned on where we're heading that we miss what God is doing all around us. Life is complex, our city is complex, and we are all at different stages on our journey. But all of us, every one of us can take a next step. All of us can share a meal with someone who is far from God. All of us can ask that God would begin to open our eyes so that we can see what God is doing all around us. I believe that God's kingdom is springing forth in a million small ways. His new way of being in the world this being that starts small and then begins to spread and is uncontainable is happening in spaces all around us. But do we have eyes to see? The kingdom isn't passive, but instead it calls us forth as active participants. We are called to follow the example of Jesus and to do what Jesus did. We are given the mandate of being peacemakers. We are given the mandate of setting people free, of working for justice, of giving dignity and proclaiming the good news. I always say that my um, my weakest moment is I'm not a great closer. Right? I, um, if I was playing sports or baseball, right, I would. I was. You wouldn't want me the last one up the bat. I would choke. Um, and this morning, I I I I've written I'd written my sermon. And I had a, a closing line, and it's, it's decent, but I, I wanted something that would make it pop. <laughs> something that would make Jesus' words and ministry come alive. 
something that would model for us what Jesus did. And then I woke up this morning, and there was an article that popped up from the Sydney Morning Herald about an, uh, about a, an author by the name of Tim, uh, uh, Tim Winston. Um, there's a movie coming out about one of his books called Breathe. Um, he's one of the most prolific and famous authors in Australia. But it talks about, the article um, in the Sydney Herald says that, um, and it's actually about something completely different, but for whatever reason, it starts with this story that when he was a young man, he was five years old, his dad was riding a motorcycle and had a terrible motorcycle accident and was thrown from his motorcycle when the vehicle hit his dad. And his dad was thrown and it smashed him up against a brick wall and he was completely incapacitated and he was paralyzed. And he was taken home, and, a, and this strong man who had always cared for his family um, was, was bedridden and could do nothing to care for himself. And so I just wanted to read a few of these words. It said, when he returned home, he was a physical and an emotional wreck. He'd gone from being the family's sole breadwinner to being bedridden, unable to move or shower himself. It was up to his wife, Bev, to manage the house and cope with the kids. Tim and his three younger siblings, Andrew, Michael, and Sharon. A week or so after John came home, a stranger showed up on the doorstep. His name was Lynn Thomas. Thomas said he'd heard about the accident and that Bev was having a tough time and he wanted help. It was so weird, Winton said. Um, we'd met, when we met, met him in, in, Port, uh, in Perth, Port City, We'd never met this guy before, and here he was, turning up unannounced and uninvited, offering to give us a hand. Almost every day for the next few weeks, Thomas came to our house, where he carried my father from his bedroom to the bathroom and gently washed him. Tib didn't know what to make of it, a stranger in the bathroom with his father. Now all he could do was sit outside the door, listening to the tap water running, and two men talking in low, soft voices. As it soon became apparent, Thomas was an evangelical Christian, and apart from washing John, he had been laying hands on him and anointing him with olive oil. Then, he said, then it says this, Thomas' intercession, what Winston now calls as an act of grace, changed the family forever. In the earliest church, when the Black Plague hit the Roman Empire, and a third of the people were destroyed. It was the early Christians who began to care for not just their own, but for everyone who was sick and in need with no concern for their own health or well-being. Most scholars say this is the moment, this is the moment that Christianity goes from being a small, odd sect in the back rooms of houses to becoming one of the most prolific and dominant religions of this empire was because of the way that they loved people. One of the images that we find all throughout the gospel is that Jesus reaches out and he touches those who were untouchable. He touches those who nobody else would come into contact with. It was the same things that his earliest followers, a hundred years after he died, did in the Roman Empire. They touched those who nobody else would have any contact with without, without concern for their lives. And the thing that drives me, the thing that I just keep thinking about is what does it mean to be people who believe that we have been given all authority and that the same things that Jesus did, we can also do? Because there is a transformative power. There's a transformative power in living the way of Jesus. 
And there is a world that is hungry, that is longing for a better way of being in the world. And so I just, my prayer for us today is that you would just begin to ask God that God would help you to take the next step towards doing what he would do. But that you don't become complacent there, but you continue to stretch and to grow and to take leaps of faith and ask that God would give you all authority and that you would do the things that Jesus did even when it takes you outside your comfort zone. Would you stand? God, I thank you for every person in this room. I thank you for the people who have said, I have decided to follow you. But some of us, we feel stuck and we, our faith feels stale. Some of us have begun to say, is there nothing more? Is this all there is to following you? And I just pray that you would begin to give us a hunger to do what you did, that you would begin to empower us through your spirit to do greater things than we ever knew were possible. May we become healing agents in our world. May you begin to do remarkable things in and through our lives and in and through our community that is gathered. I pray that the power of your spirit would just begin to fall on us here. In Jesus' name, in Jesus' name.